Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer Senior Reporter and your host for this week. As always, thanks for joining us. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with Brad DeNoyer from the IU McKinney School of Law about legal writing and the role AI will have going forward. But before we get to that, let's start with this week's headlines. Today is Wednesday, April 19th, 2023, and these are your headlines. We'll start with Alexa Shrake, who was at the hearing last week for the dispute between Attorney General Todd Rokita and Dr. Caitlin Bernard. Alexa, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita is requesting that a lawsuit between him and Indianapolis Dr. Caitlin Bernard be reconsidered. The case was voluntarily dismissed, but Rokita wants to reopen it so he can challenge the finding that he violated state law by discussing his investigation into Bernard after she publicly announced last summer that she had performed an abortion on a 10-year-old girl from Ohio. Bernard's attorneys say the case was dismissed because Rokita filed an administrative action against Bernard with the Indiana Medical Licensing Board. The Marion Superior Court then ruled that it no longer had jurisdiction to make factual findings as a result of the case with the board. But Rokita says he's being harmed and prejudiced by the dismissal because he can't challenge the finding that he violated state law. Marion Circuit Court Judge Amber Collins Giberwet is expected to hand down a decision next month. Okay, so sticking with lawsuits, I know you were also paying attention to a complaint filed by the ACLU. So what's going on there? Yeah, so the Indiana American Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit just barely an hour after Governor Eric Holcomb announced that he had signed legislation to ban gender-affirming medical care for minors. Senate Enrolled Act 480 prohibits physicians or practitioners from providing gender transition procedures to minors and establishes civil enforcement actions for anyone that doesn't turn a physician or practitioner that does provide that care. The bill received both support and opposition, either saying the medical care is harmful to children or that it is life-saving for them. Parents of transgender children spoke about why they are plaintiffs in the lawsuit and what it means for their children at a press conference the day the lawsuit was filed. Here is Ken Falk, legal director of the ACLU of Indiana, explaining the lawsuit. It prohibits parents from making the necessary medical decisions that we entrust to parents in violation of their constitutional right. It even prohibits practitioners from informing their patients that they should consult with other practitioners in other states about this care, which violates the First Amendment. All right. Thanks, Alexa. Now we'll go over to our managing editor, Daniel Carson. Daniel, uh, what's the latest on Amy Rainey, the, the uh, Republican House candidate who appealed a challenge that kept her off the ballot in the 2022 House District 49 Republican primary? Thanks, Tyler. Rainey, She cannot now appeal the challenge to her candidacy that ultimately kept her off the ballot because the May 2022 primary has come and gone. The Court of Appeals of Indiana dismissed the case as moot, noting Rainey could have appealed before the May 2022 primary date. Rainey was seeking to run in the Republican primary for the Indiana House District 49 seat, which is now held by Republican Rep. uh, Joanna King. Before the May 2022 uh, primary, Elkhart County Republican Party Chair Daniel Holtz 
challenge Rainey's candidacy, alleging she was not affiliated with the party in the way state law requires. That includes a requirement that a candidate prove that the most recent primary in which they voted was held by the applicable political party or with the county chairman of the party certifying that the candidate is a member. Rainey seemed to address those requirements in a video posted to her campaign Facebook page. During the video, she said, quote, it's clear that the major parties do not consider you to actually be a member of the major party if you're simply a voter. So you have to engage with the process. You have to vote in the primaries, even if there's only one choice, end quote. The appellate court could have issued an advisory opinion under the public interest exception to mootness, but it declined to do so. Okay. And Daniel, you also reported on changes to pro bono reporting requirements. What can you tell us about that? So Indiana attorneys will now be required to report their pro bono services specifically to public service or charitable groups or organizations. Under the new amendment to Rule 6.7a of the Indiana Rules of Professional Conduct, pro bono reporting would be done as part of the attorney's annual registration as usual, but it would be expanded to include public service or charitable groups or organizations that receive services. The amended sections of the rule would also require attorneys to report the number of legal service hours given directly to public service or charitable groups or organizations at less than 50% of a normal rate. The amendment was approved this month and it'll take effect uh, January 1st, 2024. All right, thanks Alexa and Daniel for those updates. As for me, I had the chance to go to oral arguments last week in a case involving a student who filed a class action lawsuit against Ball State University for COVID-related closures. After the student filed his complaint in 2021, the Indiana General Assembly enacted a law that bars the type of class action Keller Melowitz filed. So now the Supreme Court will decide if that recently passed law is procedural or substantive. Attorneys for the student argued it's procedural, which would put the law in conflict with Indiana Trial Rule 23, which is the rule that governs class action procedures. Attorneys for Ball State and the state of Indiana argued the law is substantive and therefore not in conflict with Trial Rule 23. On the federal side, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against a former teacher who filed a Title VII religious discrimination and retaliation suit against Brownsburg Community School Corporation. The teacher resigned in 2018 after a back and forth with administrators on how to address transgender students. The teacher said he had religious objections to calling students by their preferred names and pronouns. The district made some accommodations like he was allowed to call every student by last name only, but the district eventually said that created an undue hardship. A district court agreed and granted summary judgment in favor of the district. The teacher appealed, but the Seventh Circuit sided with the school. The court said Brownsburg met its burden of establishing undue hardship and that the teacher fell short in his retaliation claim. Shifting gears, first-time Indiana bar exam takers posted a pass rate of 62% for this year's February bar exam, down 9 percentage points from February of last year. The overall pass rate also dipped to 50% compared to 55% last year. In good news, though, repeat takers actually saw an uptick with 42% passing in February compared to 37% in last year's. 
Successful examinees will be sworn in at a ceremony on Tuesday, May 9th at the Indiana Roof Ballroom. And to finish up our headline segment for this week, Daniel, we'll come back to you. You have a preview for a story that'll be in our next print issue. So can you let us know what you're working on? Longtime Valparaiso family law attorney Shelley Wright Johnson spoke to Indiana Lawyer about her 25 trips she's taken to Egypt and the three children's books she's written on Bess, the Egyptian god known as the protector of children. Johnson made a recent trip to Egypt this year. And while she was there with Court of Appeals Judge Nancy Vedic and a group of other visitors, Johnson was invited to join a team of archaeologists that found a new best statue in Egypt. All right. When's the last time you were in Egypt, Daniel? Uh, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been okay. a while, Tyler. Uh, <laughs> hope, hope to get back. Sure. Thanks for the update there. And you can read that story in uh, the April 26th issue of The Indiana Lawyer. Okay, so that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, theindianalawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined here in our studio by Brad DeNoyer of the IU McKinney School of Law. Brad is a clinical law professor and interim director of the Academic and Bar Success Office. He got his JD from the University of Missouri and clerked for the Supreme Court of Missouri. Brad taught for several years at Missouri and came to McKinney in 2018. I also learned Brad has written Batman-related comics for DC Comics, which we will definitely talk about later. <laughs> so thanks for joining me today, Brad. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. I'm really excited for our conversation. So first... Uh, one thing I, I want to know from from everybody I talk to being kind of new to the legal reporting world is is what got you into the legal field? To the legal field? Well, uh, I was a journalism student, so hopefully that's appreciated, and uh, went to law school and didn't exactly know why I was going to law school at the time. Thought maybe I'd save the world, but also just thought it'd be uh, something to do to put off graduation. And uh, found myself really, really loving uh, jurisprudence and the philosophy behind the law and got lucky enough to get a clerkship and be invited back to teach. Did you ever, so you never did anything in journalism? No, no, outside of journalism. After I was a clerk, I did work as a communications counsel for the Missouri Supreme Court, which meant that I dealt with uh, the media and wrote speeches and all that kind of stuff. Okay. PR for the Supreme Court of Missouri. Okay. And and what got you interested then in, in legal writing and communication, that specifically? I don't, well, I'd always love to write. And th- there's very few things as satisfying as taking a really complex idea, uh, putting it in simple terms and explaining it to someone else. And then they, they get it. That's really satisfying. We're going to talk about some of the things that you've written about in legal writing. But I'm, I'm curious, you, you go through journalism school. Is any of that applicable to 
legal writing, maybe not specific things, but concepts? Oh, completely. I mean, one thing I tried to tell my students, no matter what your undergraduate major is, um, all writing should be the same. Uh, I think we get too caught up in college trying to make our legal language, well, not our legal language, but our academic writing sound so fancy and constantly using the thesaurus and the words there to for. And law school asks you to kind of strip that down and, and write in a plain uh, vernacular, which is kind of what journalism is all about, trying to put something in simple terms. And so I think journalism really taught me to be concise and clear. And that's what legal writing should be at its best. Now, I saw you're, you're a writing coach for a law firm, correct? Yes, I've done consulting for law firms. What do you do? Like, what does a writing coach do for a right. law firm? Good question. It depends. So the first thing you do, I would do is an orientation for summer clerks or for new associates, um, giving them some uh, assignments. And so before they turn in their actual work product, that they have ensured they learned how to write in a concise fashion and that they've learned how to write in a strong analysis that's also succinct. A lot of law schools across the country don't teach students how to write email. They teach them how to write the long form memorandum, the 10 to 15 page memo, which is not the most applicable thing in the world to a law firm. So one of the things I, I try to do is train them on how to write for practice, which includes the first assignment is always uh, email. The other thing sometimes I do is when a, an associate is struggling or having problems with their writing, they'll have me work with the associate. Could you say that more law firms could use the services that you give. I, is it, oh, I get to have a commercial? <laughs> uh, yeah, go ahead. 30, yeah, right. So legal writing. <laughs> oh, the most important skill for a lawyer is writing. But the the truth is uh, every law firm is different and every uh, – I will leave it to law firms to decide whether or not they think that their associates <laughs> should be writing, not the ones who graduated from McKinney. They're good. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, everyone can be better at writing. It takes time to to learn to be assured enough in your prose to just say something uh, simply the first time and know you don't need to constantly repeat yourself. Okay. Now, it's interesting you were talking about email because I, I read, well, I'll admit I did not read all 72 pages. Appreciate that. But I read uh, the abstract and your conclusion in a, in a paper you wrote in 2021 about how attorneys write e-memos. And you said that part of the problem here is, is at the time, scholars we're giving different advice, basically, and, and, and textbook examples so that professors and students were getting contradictory instructions. And based on what you have seen with legal writing and, and what you teach, how big of a problem is it that, at least in when you were doing this research, there didn't seem to be a uniform, here's how to do this instruction? Well, I was trying to see what the, if there was a uniform process that most firms would have followed or preferred, even if they didn't know it. So what I did is I uh, had over 100 attorneys from across Indiana and Missouri, big firms, small firms, government attorneys, uh, private attorneys, look at a series of different emails answering the same question. And I had a, a more complex question about the ADA and a simpler question uh, that was a statutory issue that was pretty simple. And I would give the attorneys four samples, one that was a little bit longer and more verbose, uh, one that was more succinct, another that was kind of the middle spot, right? And then the fourth one 
was uh, just really, really short, no citations. And each one of those samples followed the advice of a, a scholar or a group of scholars who had said, here's how you should write emails. Uh, and what I found was uh, a big difference in age. People who were over 40 really preferred the longer, more verbose uh, email, the one that looked like a traditional memo. And that preference for that longer form memo was um, pronounced, more pronounced, the older the attorney was. So those over 50 preferred it even more. Those over 60 loved it. Those between the ages of 30 and 40, uh, who maybe are most likely to be kind of senior associates, they really preferred the middle ground, succinct version with good citations. It was succinct, had a good analysis, but it left out a lot of the hedging language that the first version had and just kind of got to the point. And so it was really interesting to see this difference in generations. And also I noticed that the people who wrote more emails and emails and the people who worked at bigger firms, they also preferred the, the, the more concise analysis. And what I also saw is everyone basically disliked the one with very little analysis. There was a, a bottom line answer with no citations, okay. which I assumed. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes sense. And, and I wonder the, the attorneys who preferred the longer memos, mm -hmm. are these the same ones who are calling me at 1030 at night, do you think? Because they work long hours. I think, I think everyone works 1030 hours. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So it was really interesting to see how, how there was a generational gap and why there was a generational gap. And then how do you relate that to students and practitioners of, well, which one do you pick? Do you write the more verbose one for the people who are over 50? Or do you write the more concise one? And I, it depends on your audience and you'll know your firm's culture. But the big thing I wanted to, to see was, can we at least find some points that we can agree are uniform? And, and I found hopefully some of those points in my research that there were things that previous scholars, that's such a pretentious word, but previous people who'd written about this stuff had, had gotten wrong, right? A lot of people said, never give your conclusion up front if it's bad news. Well, that's not true. If it's bad news, they, your, your partner still wants to see it. They're not going to get mad at you. Uh, so there were things like that that I wanted to kind of disprove, and hopefully the research did that. It was a pretty big article, and and if I can brag, it won a it won the Legal Writing uh, uh, Junior Scholar Award. So it was it was fun to do. It's been well received. Well, congratulations! On yes, that. <laughs> yes, I'm sure your listeners are rolling their eyes. <laughs> uh, do you remember in that paper you wrote about Ernest Hemingway's iceberg theory? Do, can you explain the iceberg theory of writing? Right. If I haven't lost everyone already, yes. <laughs> so Hemingway, who was a journalist, right, wrote learned to write very concise for the Kansas City Star. His idea was that if your reader is knowledgeable, if they're learned in whatever you're writing about, then you don't have to explain every little detail to the reader because they already know that information. So you can give them a sentence that is concise and to the point, and underneath it, there might be some underlying information you both understand. You both understand the intricacies of the ADA or whatever you're talking about or how summary judgment works. You don't need to spell everything out because the reader will know it. And by that same point, you don't need to explain everything And when it comes to cases because the readers won't need to know that information. One thing that you catch young attorneys doing is writing book reports on cases that might seem uh, similar to the facts at hand or dissimilar. They're telling the reader everything they know 
rather than writing to their audience and telling them just what they need to know and leaving the other information submerged below the surface and only giving them the top of the iceberg. That sounds similar to what you probably learned in journalism school then. Yes, yes. In journalism school, it was all about, you know, making sure you could fit everything on a page. <laughs> and yeah, taking what does the reader need to know? What does the reader probably already know, especially if it's something you've been covering for, right. for a while? You don't need to rehash the entire series of events. That's a problem uh, that, that journalists face, too, is just trying to figure out what's the essential thing. And it's harder, I think, when you're a lawyer or a law student who you're, you, you've learned all this information, you want to spit it out and be like, look what I know. But one of the hardest things to learn about writing, in my opinion, is taking out ego, which is taking out, oh, this sounds really good, so I want to put it in. Or, oh, I know all this information, so I have to spill it out. And just taking out your own ego and just giving the reader what they need. Now, I saw you give a presentation in 2018 uh, about how to fix uh, quote unquote bad briefs by teaching good writing. And, and that sounded interesting to me. I wondered if you could walk me through that, that process. Yeah. So essentially, one of the things I have my students do is we look at bad examples of legal writing. And by having them critique it and say, well, here, here's what I think is wrong about this, then it'll help them note in their own writing their own mistakes or what they don't want to do. So obviously, you know, we want to give people good examples, but good examples only take you so far because that just has you mimicking a voice. Uh, giving someone a bad example shows you what, you know, what not to do. Is that there's a funny quote from from Dwight Schrute from the office of I think what a I think what an idiot would do, and I do do the opposite. I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, right. It's like that. And and so we never tried to malign. I never wouldn't make fun of bad briefs. I never, you know, picked anyone from Indiana. I was gonna but, say, like, do you keep the names on? No, or? of course okay. not. You just give people sections of writing, right? And then okay. you ask them a question. Okay, if you're a judge and you read this, would you have any idea what's going on in the case? And so we just did a series of introductions to summary judgment motions. And I asked the you know, my students, okay, you're a judge, you just got this. Do you grant or deny the motion based on this one page? And if you have no idea what to do because you don't even understand what's happening, well, what, what does that teach you? Do you have a bad uh, bad briefs bank? Yeah, it's a couple, of doc yeah, a couple of documents I have. Right, right. Okay. Uh, I also had to ask, you know, because we're talking about legal writing, is AI changing how you think about legal writing or even how you teach it? Yeah, I mean, it has to change how we teach it. Um, I'm, we're all still processing how it's changing legal writing. There are law firms who have already adopted AI. Um, now AI can take the bar exam and pass it. Uh, it's, it's really a game changer. Um, so I had to figure out how to teach my students to use it wisely. Right now, AI can't, in my opinion, answer a good uh, legal question with the detail necessary because it doesn't know how to use case law because it can't reach into Westlaw or Lexis at this point. Uh, I'm, this is probably going to change by the time this podcast comes out. Uh, <laughs> this will all be irrelevant. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but but it's still, hey, it's, it's, it's a lot cheaper than getting a lawyer if you want to put in your information and, and have it spit things back out. The other problem with AI is you can't upload all the information you need into it. It only can take so many words. So it's really good at answering a law school question that is, you know, half a page long and then spitting out an answer. That it can do pretty well. What it can't do yet is really analyze a problem using case law, making good analysis, making counter arguments and making policy points. So it hasn't gotten to that level yet, but 
that's a, I mean, that's the ideal level for all of us to write necessarily that we do. So like, for example, I took the questions I used for that email uh, article I wrote and I had chat GPT try to answer them. And the answer wasn't, it wasn't bad, but it certainly didn't give any um, real precedent or counter arguments. It kind of just said, the ADA says you have to protect uh, people who have disabilities and they should be able to have their service animals. Like that's, that's all right, but it doesn't give the kind of detail, hopefully, that, that a real lawyer would still give. So the question is then, what do we do with it? And I think you have to have students mess with it at this point, just learn how to use it and then c come back and refine their writing. Um, but I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to use them in the classroom. I think there's a lot of possibilities there, though, for assignment ideas I have. Can you see a world where maybe there's less emphasis on how to do the legal writing and more of an emphasis on, okay, here's the the correct prompt you're going to give to chat GPT, for example, oh, to get you what yeah. you want? Because that you've kind of touched on it. It's difficult sometimes to get exactly what you're looking for. And so you end up with bare bones stuff. But mm -hmm. if if you spend time learning how to ask the right questions of yeah. AI, you can get better at you know getting what you want. Right, but you have to be, it depends on how limited you are, what information you feed it, how much information can you feed it. And right now there's restrictions. And at a certain point, at what point do you go from spending so much time crafting a question that you could have crafted the answer? Right. Uh, but writing throughout time is all about, it's been getting, all about getting simpler, uh, to be really, really horribly nerdy. The first writings, you know, cuneiform written on clay tablets were these symbols that only the, the high class priestly people knew. And then we moved into letters and more people could learn it and it was simpler. Language got simpler in a way. Language has always been getting in a way simpler for mass communication. And so this might just be another means of that. And unfortunately it might mean uh, bad things for lawyers and maybe even a, a dumbing down of, of society and how we write because now computers do it for us. I want to see what happens when you give the prompt and you get that bare bones answer and you just keep asking why, yeah. like a child, you know. Right. Why, well, that's why, like, why? that's the Socratic method, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I've done that before. Just I keep messing with ChatGPT to see the capabilities. And a lot of times it'll just, it'll say the why, like I have searched the internet. And that's why. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. And that's, that's the, it's like, that's the AI's version of, because I'm a parent, you do what I say. Oh, I've searched the internet. Oh, okay. <laughs> now I have to ask about the, the Batman comics with DC comics. What's the background on how that came about? <laughs> right. So as a first year law student, I wrote a email, everything comes back to email, to an author named Brad Meltzer, who's a best-selling uh, author of, of legal thrillers, and government thrillers, and he'd written some comic books. And uh, we got along, he lives in Florida, we got along and he took me to Florida for a while and um, met his family, very nice people. And he had me be his assistant. And so I worked doing research for his thrillers to make them, you know, he likes to add realistic elements. And uh, eventually I wrote a comic book samples and he had contacts at DC and uh, they picked up uh, this article I wrote in Shazam superhero. And um, they were like, okay, well, we like this one. Okay. So here's some stories we need and write them. So I wrote a couple of quick stories for um, some Batman issues. They're backups, like meaning they're little short stories that go in the back of other issues. And it was just a, a fun thing I did in law school when I was a, a young lawyer, because I have always been, you can tell from the cuneiform, I've always been a nerd. <laughs> did you get paid? 
Very little. Yes. Okay. Yes, I got paid. <laughs> let's talk. Let's let me get my paycheck. Out. No, the coolest thing is the paycheck like has a picture of like Batman on it. Oh, and wow. so like I still have like the Christmas card of like Supergirl. Like that was what it was about. And I still have the copies of the comic book, you know, and, and that's the cool part. Right. Yeah. Do you still do it? I don't. Uh, I I. I took a full-time job with ba- salary and benefits. Mm. So <laughs> Probably no, my free time. I'd love to, but I have three little kids. So. Oh, no yeah. need to do the the Batman comics anymore. Well, I'm sure. Hey, man, if DC's listening, I'm sure they listen to this podcast. Uh, call me up. Yeah. Uh, and, and the last thing I wanted to know about this is I noticed the term was Batman related. Yeah. So it wasn't always. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um my stories were about like Batman side characters. Like one of the stories was about the Joker. One was about Two Face. It wasn't like Batman. It was Batman Universe. Okay. There you go. All right. <laughs> On the spot here, favorite Batman movie. I'm gonna I'm gonna say one that that Batman Under the Red Hood. It's an animated movie. From <laughs> it's when? really good. I've not. I heard don't of it. know. It came out like like five or ten years ago. Okay. I liked it. All right, Batman. What, what Under was, the Red Hood. Under the Red Hood. Uh, Go watch it. It's Brad's Brad's (laughs) recommendation. (laughs) That'll do it for uh, this week's extended interview. Thank you again to Brad for joining me today. As always, uh, to hear our previous interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.